You're listening to Live from City Lights, a podcast of readings and archives from City Lights books and publishers. To learn more, visit www.citylights.com. Excited about tonight, and this is one of the grand pleasures of this kind of work. Is when you can pick a book that you know is is a very relevant one, a very exciting one, and something that that kind of really you know kind of gets your blood boiling. And uh, we don't feel obligated to kind of like stage events for you know kind of simply because something is a bestseller. And uh, and also the fact that this is produced by New York Review of Books, and I, I you know admire their courage at kind of breaking into new areas and they've been doing some really wonderful wonderful work so the book we're celebrating tonight is called wilding returning nature to our farm uh it has a wonderful introduction by eric schlosser many of you know uh so very very honored to have isabella tree and her partner charlie burrell here with us tonight they are stewards of the knep project and they're going to talk a little bit about that but also about many of the ideas in the book i mean at a moment when we're seeing so many catastrophes emerge and we're realizing that so much of it is because people are not paying attention and not thinking about their relationship to the earth. And I think that the ideas in this book, I mean, they're very, very timely. And uh, it really gets you thinking about, you know, how can we reframe? Um, and, you know, it's still possible to engage in commerce, but I mean, doing it in a smart way and not in a way where, you know, a serpent's going to end up eating its own tail. And as we've seen with many of the fires in California, uh, these are kind of like situations that really never really needed to happen. But I think because of greed, politics and what have you, uh, we have now um, a pretty serious situation on our hands. So I think those of us that, that tend to land, I mean, whether it's like a little plot next door to your house or a larger plot. I mean, it's it's time to really begin kind of articulating kind of newer models. So really very honored to have you with us and welcome to City Lights. Thank you. Thank you very much. It's fantastic to be here. I'm really thrilled to be talking City Lights. Um, yeah, I, we do wake up every day now to more and more news of, you know, catastrophes, the environmental collapse. Uh, I think one of the headlines this week was that uh, America has lost three billion birds since the 1970s. Um, and in Britain, it's very much the same thing. We lost uh, 44 million birds uh, since 1960. So there were, over our small island, 44 million more birds when I was born than there are now. Um, this is just one of them. Uh, it's the turtle dove. It's what my true love gave to me at Christmas. It's the stuff of Chaucer, of Shakespeare. It's in our cultural DNA in Britain, and yet it is the bird that is most likely to go extinct within the next five to ten years, according to the Royal Society for the Protection of Birds. And for me, this is very much our kind of canary in the mine. Um, it's, it's, I feel personally terribly sad about it, because when I grew up in the 60s, we had 125,000 pairs of turtle doves. So to me, the sound of the that lovely, gentle tour-tour that you get from the thickets was the stuff of summer. It was like, um, as familiar to me as the sound of the cuckoo, another hugely declining bird. But it's more than that, because the disappearance of the turtle dove, the collapse, the 97% collapse in its, in its numbers in Britain, is symptomatic of what's been going on across the board, across the whole of biodiversity. So it's not only, it, it's, the, it's the conspicuous species that we're noticing now, 
But ahead of it, we've lost lichens, insects we probably didn't even have names for, things that we just don't even count. And trailing in its wake are all these other species, the cuckoos, the nightingales, uh, you name it, we know. Um, so really, the turtle dove has become the symbol of what's been happening at NEP. Um, we know E.O. Wilson, your wonderful American biologist, uh, tells us that if we are to save ourselves, if we're to save our, the systems, the life support systems that we need to survive on Earth, we have to dedicate half of Earth to nature. The question is, how are we going to do that? So this story really is, is a very little story. Um, it's the story of how my husband and I moved into nature from intensive farming. But it's a story of hope, and I think it's a big story in the sense of how it's a big change of mindset. And I think that's what we need going forward. So that's really what the story is about. And the turtle dove has sort of become a bit of our emblem. So it's complicated why the turtle dove is declining. We can't blame it all on Britain, but because it's um, an African migrant, um, it comes from, it has three and a half thousand miles. It travels from Africa. We know habitat is changing already in Africa, so that's affecting it. Um, more and more weather events with um, you, you know, the volatility of our weather systems are blowing these birds out into the Atlantic and they get lost. Um, the Sahara oases, where they stop to drink, are drying up. And then, of course, if they do make it to the Mediterranean, then they face the firing squads of Malta, of southern Spain, of Italy, even in France, where they're shot by the hundreds of thousands, even though there's a moratorium on shooting them. In Europe, their numbers are declining, but they are declining on this kind of trajectory. What is astonishing about Britain is that we are a cliff face. They have, as I say, declined 97%, and this is why. This is what our landscape looks like. Um, and it didn't always look like this. I think this is the important point to make. In the Dig for Victory campaign in the Second World War, every single inch of land in Britain was ploughed up for the war effort. You know, we were facing starvation, our supply lines were cut, um, it, was a, it was a crisis. And so the government encouraged us, incentivized us to plough up every single inch of land, which included cricket pitches, um, uh, football pitches, areas of, of landscape, beautiful rolling downland that had been sacrosanct even in the First World War. This was a crisis. But we became used to that idea of maximum production, I think. And after the Second World War, much like the rest of Europe and like America, we became hooked on the chemical industrialization of agriculture. We became chemical ad addicts and, at and attached to this, this idea of maximum production at all costs, completely forgetting about the soil. And this is how we think the landscape should look. This is what we think of as normal. But of course, attached to this landscape is a catastrophic loss of biodiversity. So apart from our birds that we're losing, um, we've pulled up, as part of this war effort since the Second World War, we lost 75,000 miles of hedgerows. We lost tens of thousands of ancient woodlands. We lost more woodlands, ancient woodlands, in the 40 years after the Second World War than in the 400 years before it. We've lost 97% of our wildflower meadows. We've lost almost all our lowland heathland, almost all our lowland um, wetlands since the Second World War. So this is a kind of a catastrophic change that was compelled by a situation that was a, a crisis that even at the time 
agronomists were saying we can't carry on like this forever because we're losing our soils and yet the government continued down this 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 chemical route that we knew was going to be depleting um, our soils and ultimately of course nature this is our farm 20 years ago so this is what we thought was normal um, and every inch of the land was ploughed up and had been since the Second World War, including all our wetlands and including the Repton Park around the house. And this is our house. It's, uh, uh, <laughs> it's, uh, it's called Nep Castle. Um, it sits in 3,500 acres, 44 miles south of London. So we're in the busiest, most sort of congested, conurbated area of England in the southeast underneath the Gatwick stacking system, surrounded by A roads. And there's this little, um, you know, oasis, this, this estate that hasn't really been, been, been touched, although, you know, it's been intensively agri um, uh, farmed, but it's still intact as an estate in, in the south of England. And we inherited this estate from my husband Charlie's grandparents um, in the 1980s. So we were still quite young, we were in our 20s, and... When we took over, it was intensive arable and dairy. Uh, it was already, however, a failing farm, a failing enterprise. It was losing money hand over fist. And I think with the, the sort of arrogance um, of youth, I would say, we assumed that this was all down to Charlie's grandparents. We assumed that they hadn't invested in infrastructure. They didn't know the latest technologies. You know, we knew it all. We could turn it around. And Charlie, my husband, had just come out of agricultural college. He was a child of the Green Revolution, a misnomer if ever there was one, but he felt, <laughs> he felt very strongly that he could turn the fortunes of the farm around. And so that's what we did. For 17 years, we did what every good farmer is supposed to do. We invested in bigger machinery, we invested in infrastructure, we made efficiencies, we amalgamated five dairies into three dairies, we bought state-of-the-art milking parlours that looked like something out of NASA. Um, we uh, experimented with different breeds. We sold the old, beautiful old red pole dual-purpose herd that his grandparents had loved and cherished and bought, you know, pedigree. I mean, we bought Holsteins and Frisians because they're better milkers. We bought huge amounts of milk quota. We even diversified into ice cream until the, 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 the Darth Vader of the ice cream world, Hagen dazs came on the horizon and blew us out of the galaxy, so that didn't work. But we, of course, then experimented too with different varieties of crops, and inevitably we put more chemicals on the land, more fertilizer, more pesticide, more fungicide, more herbicide, everything in an effort to try and increase our yields. And 17 years on, uh, we were in a worse state than ever. Uh, we were still losing money. In fact, our debt was now up to one and a half million pounds, and we knew we couldn't go on. Something had to change. The problem that it took us 17 years to realize this was our soil. We sit on 320 meters of clay. Um, I think the Inuit are supposed to have dozens and dozens of different words for different types of snow. Um, but in Sussex, in the old dialect, we have over 35 words for mud. That is how much it governs our lives. So in the winter, it's just like unfathomable porridge, and you can't get machines onto the land. So no heavy machinery, you can't sow spring crops, you can't dig out your ditches, you can't do any maintenance. And in the summer, it bakes as hard as concrete. So you can literally stick your arm up to the shoulder down the cracks in the summer. It's, it's unforgiving, wretched stuff. 
And we realized that this, we, we could not go on on this soil doing the kind of farming that we had been doing for six or seven decades. Uh, we just weren't cut out for it. We could never, ever compete with farms on lovely grade one, grade two, lovely loamy soils. Something had to change. And so Charlie made the big decision to give up farming. Um, it was a really difficult decision to make. It was a huge wrench, and I think anyone who has farmed can appreciate that. It's not only a sense of failure, but it's also a sense that you're kicking in the teeth a culture that you've been grown up and lived with for so long. We had to make our farm manager redundant, who was a great friend, and nine other men lost their jobs. We had to sell our three milking herds that were consistently in the top 10 milking herds in Britain. So we weren't bad farmers, um, but we had to all let all that go. And on top of that, there was all the, the cultural pressure of family and neighbors thinking that we were being and calling us you know, uh, irresponsible, uh, lazy, unpatriotic. I mean, you name it. We got letters that you can't believe. But it was a very brave decision, and it, that was really Charlie's decision um, to move. And we knew both of us. We had a kind of. Uh, we've always been in a very amateurish way interested in nature. We used to travel the world to look at nature. Never once considered having it in our own backyard. Um, but we now thought, having rid ourselves of the burden of this failing enterprise, it gave us headspace to think freely about really what we were doing and what our land was actually suitable for. And I think quite often if you're in a failing business, you don't have that luxury of the, the headspace to think and to talk to people and to reach out and actually work things through. And so it was only really after we'd had our sale of our farm machinery and our cows and our milk quota, cleared our debts that we were able to meet this amazing man with our minds and eyes open. And that's Franz Vera. He's the guy on the right there. Um, he's a Dutch ecologist, um, and in the very year that we'd had our farm machinery sale, he and given up farming, um, his book, Grazing Ecology and Forest History, came out in English. It's not a light read, but it is very, very interesting what he's saying. Um, and we were really, really intrigued by it. What France is saying is that in all our imaginings of what temperate zone Europe looked like, we have completely forgotten about all the free-roaming herbivores that would have been there in the first place before human impact. So we've forgotten about bison. We've forgotten about the aurochs, the ancestor of the cow. We've forgotten about tarpan, the ancient horse. We've forgotten about um, elk, about reindeer, about wild boar, about beavers by the million. In fact, the planet has forgot, forgotten about the megafauna that existed at the peak of the moment when the planet was at its most biodiverse, was when it was full of these megafauna herbivores and um, browsers and grazers that were driving the systems. So um, I think in America you had um, about 40, 35 genera, I think, that have been lost since um, human impact. And I think in South America, it's something like 58. I mean, huge. Those are genera, not species, of megafauna that have gone extinct. So these megafauna um, would have impacted the landscape, the vegetation. They'd have driven habitats, uh, the way they rootle, break branches, debark trees, the way they turf up the soil, their dung, their urine, their whole big disturbance in huge herds would have interacted with the vegetation in such a way 
that you would have had a much more complex habitat, much more dynamic, shifting kaleidoscope of habitat, of landscape, than we can possibly imagine today. And so what France is saying is that if you want to recover biodiversity, if you want to get landscapes to regenerate, to spring back to life, you can't just leave them because they've had a sort of catastrophic shift under intensive farming, under chemical um, sort of uh, processes. But you need something that's going to give them the dynamism to, to lift that glider back up into the sky. And herb herbivores can do that for you. The key thing is to sit back and let them do the management. Very, very difficult for humans to do. But put the drivers in place, let them do the work, and then see what happens. So we thought this was a really interesting experiment. If we could use free-roaming animals on our severely deplete, depleted post-agricultural land in the busy southeast of England, if we could get so much as just a little increase in biodiversity, that would be an experiment worth trying. So that's what we decided to do. And we spent um, a very happy time, at least my husband did, Charlie, you can imagine the kind of the boy's dream of smashing up all the old Victorian drains that have been trying very ineffectually to take the water off our land, letting the ditches just silt up. I think we took about 70 miles of internal fences out. Again, imagine the cost to a farmer, that maintenance every year. We just let go. Um, and we saw uh, the scrub beginning to, to um, appear, thorny scrub, and soon we had water just sitting where it had always wanted to sit. And suddenly we were hearing bird life, wildfowl coming back, and, and the sound of insects. And that was a complete revelation to us, something we hadn't even realised we were missing as farmers. We hadn't been hearing insects, and they were back. And this was in just the first or second year of rewilding. And so finally, after allowing this kind of vegetation pass to happen, after about six or seven years, we finally persuaded the powers that be, the government basically, to give us some funding. They thought we were mad to begin with. It took, them, it took us a long time to persuade them. Um, to give us some funding to ring fence the whole area so that we could release our, our free-roaming animals. Now, obviously, we've lost a lot of our megafauna. We don't have the aurochs anymore. We don't have the tarpan um, in, the, in Europe. So what we, have, we can do, though, is we can use proxies for a lot of these animals. So um, we don't have the aurochs, but we can use um, a domesticated cow instead, its descendant. We don't have a tarpan, but we can use a, a breed of horse. Um, the idea is to get as many of these herbivore mouthpieces in the, in the landscape as possible, a whole suite of animals. And the more animals, species you can get, in that landscape, the more complex the vegetation becomes, the more complex the habitat. So this is our aurochs. It's our old longhorn cow, um, doing a very good imitation. It's got the sweeping horn, so it's got a remnant of that kind of ancient look about it. But the key thing about cattle is they don't just eat grass. We forget that in our modern situations. They're browsers as much as grazers. And this is what keeps them healthy through the winter. They'll be browsing on, 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 uh, on bark, on, on leaves, on whatever they can find. We don't supplementary feed them, so they have to live outside all year round, fending for themselves. They carve down where they like. They do whatever they like. They have free reign of the place. The key thing about these animals is that they carry 230 different seed species in their gut, their hooves, and their fur. So that's a very important vector um, of getting plants around a landscape. They eat in one place, and then they can walk sometimes miles, dung out those seeds in a perfect little pile of manure ready to take off again. But they're also, of course, 
being vectors for minerals and nutrients as well. And again, that's something we've completely forgotten in our static systems of agriculture. We, we have animals in one place, we take them off. We take them off. They're taking the nutrients down the whole time. In the past, they would have moved nutrients around the landscape, literally from the coast up to the mountaintops. It would have been a really important way of getting minerals into different types of soil. And then we have um, Exmoor ponies standing in for the tarpan. Um, I don't know if any of you are familiar with the cave paintings of Lascaux in France. They're 17,500 years old. And the horses on, in those cave paintings are almost exactly the same as the Exmoor. The Exmoor is one of our oldest breeds in Britain. Um, it kind of clung on. It was down to 40 individuals after the during the Second World War when the army used, it, used them as target practice because they were a wild herd on Exmoor. Um, but they were brought back from the brink. We now have a herd of about 30 or 40 on NEP. Um, they're still rarer than the tiger. Um, but they are, again, um, a different mouthpiece in the landscape, doing different things, eating differently, behaving differently. Um, there's a really interesting relationship between equines and bovines that we're just discovering about. And actually, that's thanks to Princeton University in Kenya have been doing these um, experiments with cattle and, and equines. And they found something that is so counterintuitive. It's like so much of rewilding. It's, you can't quite believe how it will work. But they've discovered that if you have, say, 100 head of cattle in a given area, if you allow them to graze with an equine, and that could be a donkey, a pony, or even a zebra, those cows will put on more condition, more weight, than if you just let them graze that given area on their own. How can that happen? You'd think they'd be competing for the same resource, but they're not. The, the exmoors, or the equines, but in our case the exmoors, are eating the really tough stuff, all those thatchy grasses that the cows can't stomach. You can see here in these pictures the ponies are eating thistles, which the cows just won't touch. And taking out that rough stuff enables the sweeter grasses to come through, and that's what benefits and puts the weight on the cattle. So we've forgotten about this relationship, but I have in my head this sort of this wonderful sort of image before human beings of how Tarpan would have been roaming through the countryside and in their wake you would have had the cattle grazing behind them. And of course the horse came from America. You would have had this relationship um, with the horses taking out the thatchy stuff for eventually when the bison came over from Europe for the bison to, to, to benefit from too. And so we have three different types of deer as well. We have um, fallow, red, and roe deer. Again, it's the same principle, different mouthpieces in the landscape, doing different things. Particularly in the rut, the red deer are really big, heavy hitters. They'll turf up the ground with their antlers. Um, they'll, they love water. We're used to seeing red deer nowadays in Scotland, up in the rocky reaches in really barren, remote areas. Actually, we're beginning to understand they were probably a riverine species and we just push, push them out of the rivers in Europe. Um, so they would have been much more like a Pear David or a Sitatunga. They'd have been actually m most of their life in the water, um, as you see here. Um, fallow deer as well in the rut, you know, they'll create these great leks, these big arenas where they'll sort of spread urine everywhere and they'll rub their scent glands everywhere. So everything they do is opening up a niche for other insects, for other life. They have a big knock-on effect. And of course, they eat different different plant species, so again, you're getting more vegetation complexity. And then my favorite, this is our wild boar. <laughs> Until we're able to release a wild boar, these are the, our Tamworth pigs are standing in for them. 
But what's astonishing when you put these domesticated creatures into a landscape, how full of surprises they are. I mean, who would have thought that a pig would behave like a hippo? But we watched our, our Tamworths actually diving for swan mussels, and they can hold their breath for 20 seconds. Absolutely astonishing. And when I think back to the days of when we were farmers, and I used to look at our cows, our dairy cows in the field, and I think they were nice animals, but pretty boring. But it's not the animals that are boring, it's the situation we're putting them in that's boring. Release them into a landscape where they can be completely creative and use all their instincts, and you see the full expression of that animal coming out. And it's ingenious, it's clever, it's, it's sort of... Um, it, 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 it's, it's just a totally, it seems to be a totally different animal. Anyway, they, the pigs have clearly taken to rewilding with, um, with vigour. But what they are particularly doing um, for us um, is, is they're, they're rootling. Um, I think Charlie's actually put on, put on his... I'm getting a bit confused here. Let me just see where we go. Okay. So... This is how it goes. We are now the, by far the biggest breeding hotspot for purple emperor butterflies in Britain. And it's one of our rarest butterflies. It's our second largest butterfly. It beh behaves a bit like a bird. It's an honorary bird. Um, and it's, it's very sort of belligerent. It, will, it, it loves eating fox scat. It gets drunk on sap runs. It's, it's unlike any butterfly that I've ever come across before. I didn't even know we had purple emperor butterflies until they arrived at NEP. But now this has become rather a headline species for us. But the reason we think we've got them is because of the pig. And this is how it goes. Um, the pig is rootling. So it's, you can see how you've got that, that very heavy sward, that thick grass sward. It's very difficult for seeds to penetrate that sward. If you have that little opening, that little rootled area, suddenly you see um, amazing difference in, in the vegetation very quickly. You can see that Charlie's wellies haven't even moved. <laughs> but anyway, we suddenly started, because of the pigs, we think, we suddenly started getting um, the tiny weeds. I swore I was, I swore I was never going to use the word weed ever again. Our beautiful native wildflowers, because we, we, they are not weeds. They are our, our native wildflowers. And because we have zero tolerance for them in our landscape, not just in our arable areas, but in our gardens and even on our roadside verges. We have seen catastrophic declines in our, in our wildflowers. But these wildflowers um, contain tiny little protein-rich seeds on which so many species depend, um, including um, the turtle dove. So having had no turtle doves at NEP at all in the beginning of our project, suddenly, a few years in, we were seeing three or four turtle dove singing. This was completely bucking the trend of the, the whole national consensus, the na national census. Um, this is a little out of date. So last year, um, we haven't finished our, our counting for this year, but last year we had 20 turtle doves. Um, that's singing males. You can only hear the males. The, the females don't sing. So this is totally extraordinary because we are probably now the only place in Britain where turtle dove numbers are actually rising. Um, and we think that it's actually partly because of the pigs rootling that have released the seeds, the, the source that their food source, that we are now seeing that the turtle doves in, um, increase. Um, and it's the same for the purple emperors because the purple emperors depend on sallow, and the sallow seed um, seeds itself in these rootled areas. It's only got two weeks when it's viable as a seed. It has to find open bare ground for two weeks in April. 
And how is it going to find that except in these little pockets where the, where the pigs are rootling? So it, that's the food plant of the, of the purple emperor. So we have two huge successes at NEP thanks to the rootling of the pigs. In the soil, or or in the soil, or blown in, or brought in by birds, um, you know, excreted by birds. So, so uh, the whole nothing. We haven't introduced anything at all, but certainly our wildflower. Uh, a lot of our native wildflowers, we think, are still in the seed bank and coming up. Yeah. Yes. So the only thing we've done is introduce the the free roaming animals. Um, that's literally the only intervention we have, apart from keeping the numbers very low. We cull them to keep the numbers. So we have this battle between vegetation and animal disturbance, so you don't get overgraze. So this is, this is really um, what explains it. This is, this is what our land looked like, and you can see now what happens as it begins to heal itself, as you get this rewilding effect coming in. And this is what it looks like from the ground. So it's a diff completely different habitat to what any of us are used to seeing in Britain and probably most of Europe too. It's thorny scrub. Um, when people come to NEP, they often say it's like Africa because that's the nearest place they've been to that looks like this. But once we would have had this thorny scrub all over Britain, it would have been cherished. And you only have to look at our field names at NEP, things like Thornhill and Brummer's Corner and uh, uh, Benton's Gorse and Fursfield. They all indicate... Um, thorny species like this that once would have had value for fodder, for thatch, for gunpowder, for medicine, you name it. Everything in that picture would have had a value. And I have a sort of pipe dream that perhaps in the era post-plastics we will find value in this kind of scrub once again. But this is where our turtle doves are nesting. So what they're finding there is protection from predation in the thorny scrub. That's where they want to make their nests. That's where we're finding our nightingales. That's where so many of our creatures, it's one of the most biodiverse habitats there is. And yet in Britain and in Europe, we have almost zero tolerance for it. People look at that picture and they consider it wasteland and we'll just send in the big machines to take it out. But that is where biodiversity is actually completely rocketed. And our, our, the surround sound noise of the, of the songbirds from this, this habitat is absolutely astonishing. So now, thanks to that landscape, pretty much, we've got some of our rarest species in, in Britain. Uh, we've got lesser spotted woodpecker, we've got uh, nightingales, I, I, I mentioned, cuckoos, we've got ravens back in Sussex for the first time in 100 years, we've got woodcock, we've got snipe, um, we've got peregrine falcons nesting in a tree, which is almost unheard of. We've got all five species of owl now um, in Britain, including the little owl on the left, which is a speci uh, species that it specializes in um, beetles. And of course, because we're not putting avermectins in our animals, like um, the wormers that are routinely put into um, industrial livestock, and we're not giving them antibiotics, the dung is perfectly organic. So we've seen an explosion of dung beetles. And Charlie, who luckily isn't here, because I can talk about him freely, and he doesn't even he know what I'm saying, <laughs> but he, he has a bit of a dung beetle fetish. And um, there was a summer, a couple of summers ago, I couldn't work out what he was doing, but he was following the cattle around with his phone and dropping to his stomach every time a cow did a cow pat. And I couldn't work out what he was doing, but he was timing how long it took a dung beetle to find the cow pat. And the fastest was under 60 seconds. Um, that was all well and good until he brought his experiments into the kitchen at home, and that was not funny. And so... 
there were unspeakable things in the freezer. There were test tubes all over the surfaces, and he was having a very happy time ferreting through cowpats. But at the end of the summer, he'd found one cowpat with 23 different species of dung beetle in it. And obviously, these are keystone species in themselves because they are pulling that dung back into the soil, you know, bringing back the soil structure, bringing back the nutrients into the soil. He even found one dung beetle, a lovely beetle, quite big actually, called the violet door beetle, which again hasn't been seen in Sussex for 50 years. These have just found us. I mean, how? I have no idea. They must be clinging on to us, a little remnant of hedgerow or something, and finding us because the habitat is now there. It's a kind of miracle. They're there somewhere, ready to, to come back. We've already got that. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Um, and we now have 13 out of the UK, 18 species of bats, including this one, um, Beckstein's bat, which is so rare we, we hardly know anything about it at all. Um, and this is just an extraordinary, just to give an idea of the kind of biomass that's come back. Um, this lovely guy called Tony Davis has been ringing birds at net for, uh, in his life for 30 years, but um, last year he ringed more lesser whitethroat and blackcap in two fields on net than he's ringed in his entire career. So that just gives an idea of, I mean, we're, we're changing the baselines of what people, um, even you know, specialist ecologists, believe the landscape could actually hold. Nobody could believe there could be that many, many birds on this land, and they still keep coming. It's, uh, it's astonishing. Um, three and a half thousand. Okay, yes, so this is just um, uh, one of the, the sort of most important. We, we, we spend a lot of our time and energy um, on monitoring and surveying. I mean, not me personally, because I'm not a scientist, I'd be hopeless. But we, we, we take it very seriously. We, had, we did a baseline survey at the very beginning of our project. So we know exactly what has come back and what improvements have been made. That's hugely important, I think, for anyone considering doing rewilding. So you have the evidence there. But one of the most important is, is, is what's happened to our soils. Now, we know that the, one of our biggest crises facing the planet is soil um, erosion. Um, some scientists are talking about having less than 100 harvests left across the globe before the topsoil is gone. It's so friable that it's just literally blowing away in the wind or washing out to sea. And so we have to think about dramatic and fast ways that we can bring back our soils. Um, and rewilding is one way that we, we can show we can do that because within 20 years, we have more than doubled the soil carbon, so we're sequestering carbon. We've more than doubled the organic carbon, and we've doubled the or organic soil matter. So we're seeing a completely different look of our soils. Double the microbial biomass, so the, the life that is in the soils now is, is, is back. It's completely different. And we've more than tripled our mycorrhizae fungi. So that's that hugely important underground network that is supplying nutrients to all our plants. Um, and again, the fungal bacteria ratio has recovered. That's a, that's a key, key indicator. So really, what's, what's happened at NEP um, has been completely astonishing. In less than 20 years, it's gone from a very denuded um, post-arable landscape to something that really resembles more like the Serengeti, and with it, this astonishing kind of biodiversity that's come back. But it's not just wildlife that we're now interested in. Um, it's the other services that we're producing for the public, if you like. It's the public goods that, that people are talking about. So we know that we're, we're cleaning the water. 
Water that comes onto our land is often heavy with nitrates from surrounding farms it's, and polluted from the roads. But once it's actually sitting on our land, all our water tests show that that water is of the highest possible quality. So our soils, our recovered soils and our vegetation is acting like a filter, actually cleaning water. So that's a huge cost saving for the taxpayer if you're having water utility bills where they're not actually having to charge you for cleaning those nitrates out of the water in the first place. We're also, of course, storing water much more safely. And so in times of huge rain, it doesn't release straight off the ground. It doesn't run off the top and become um, flood and flood um, buildings and property and roads beneath us. Um, in the catchment area downstream from us, places that always used to flood never do anymore. So we're acting as a kind of flood mitigator. Again, a hugely big saving for the public purse if you're thinking of the huge expense of hard revetments trying rather ineffectually to stop flooding. And then, of course, you've got um, the, the sort of um, the kind of imponderables that I think we cannot put a, put a price on. That is the kind of effect that it has on human health. We know that we have only been urban beings for kind of blip in our evolution, and that if we sever ourselves from nature, that does have an impact on us, not just physically, but also mentally. And we see the cost to our health services of, of, of mental health problems and how quickly people can recover if they are given access to nature. I think it's one of the most surprising things, actually, from Charlie and my point of view and our kind of personal journey from this kind of mindset of being farmers to what we do now, of how it has affect us, affected us um, psychologically. And again, E.O. Wilson calls this biophilia, that, that amazing sense you get when you of that innate feeling we all have, I think, of wanting to connect with living things and how it makes you feel the joy of actually hearing a, a turtle dove touring in the scrub next to you. That's a sense of completeness and of being immersed in living things. So if there are all these benefits to come from rewilding, why aren't more people doing it? Well, we have seen at NEP um, People, Charlie likes to clock up the acreage. Um, so we had um, landowners and farmers last year totaling a million acres who came to visit NEP, looking at rewilding seriously on their land. And we've had at least a million acres this year already. So people are beginning to look at it very, um, uh, you know, with, with great interest and very seriously. But I think it's one thing coming to NEP and saying, we love what you're doing. It's another going back to your own patch and actually doing it. And I think one of the the problems is it's a question of aesthetics. We've grown up living in a landscape that is very managed, um, it's very manicured, it's very controlled. And sometimes we have a kind of a connection, a, nostalgia, a nostalgic connection with that kind of control. And so I think if we're going to embrace all the benefits that rewilding our land can bring us, if we are to bring half earth back to nature, We've got to, in a sense, let go. We've got to learn to listen. And when we don't hear the sound of birds and insects, we've got to know that there's something wrong. We've got to let go of our um, corseted obsession with tidying up. We've got to get messy. And we've really got to change our mindset, open our minds to having boom and bust cycles of nature again, and free-roaming animals doing unpredictable things and not being frightened of not knowing what's going to happen next. So really, I think the, the, the whole feeling and, and uh, position of rewilding is as much about understanding how it works and what it can bring us as about 
learning how to rewild ourselves. Thank you. Very happy to answer questions if anyone has any questions. Our neighbours are now happy. We did have, I mean, just piles of your sincerely discussed letters at the, at the beginning of our project. And um, we've actually now had a few letters of apology, which has been amazing. A couple of people who've written in to us and said, we got it so wrong at the beginning. We, we wrote you a filthy letter and we're sorry. We, we, we've changed our minds. We know what, we understand what you're doing now. So that's been fantastic. Um, we still have a few, as we call them, Taliban farmers on our, our <laughs> borders who really don't, you know, uh, um, like what we're doing. But mostly, I think, um, the impetus is beginning. I think the Titanic is beginning to turn. That's what's so exciting. I think in the last year or two, um, the interest and the open-mindedness, I think, that people have now for this kind of thing, and also, of course, for regenerative farming, which is, you know, where we're going to have to move away from industrial farming. So rewilding is perhaps all about nature, but we, it goes in tandem with regenerative farming. And, and we're, we're seeing all sorts of projects kicking off, particularly in the States, actually. So it's really exciting. I didn't see much of predators. No, and that, that we're very aware that we don't have predators. I mean, in Britain, we are so, so small-minded that, I mean, it's, it's taken us... We're still battling with the idea of having beavers back in our landscape. They dis disappeared about 500 years ago. And we are only just beginning to reintroduce beavers. We've just applied for our licence to, to release them at NEP. I don't know if we'll get them, but, you know, the, the decision is pending. Um, Charlie got very excited about, um, at one point, that we could have lynx at NEP. Um, you know, this lovely big cat uh, was a big predator. Uh, I think we lost that about 1,000 years ago in Britain. Obviously, being a small island, it's very easy to you know, hunt out your predators very quickly. We lost our wolves about um, 600 years ago. I mean, a few clung on in Scotland, but pretty much we wiped them out many centuries ago. Um, but Charlie got very excited about how, because he, he, he worked out how much um, one lynx, the biomass one lynx needs of prey to survive, and he worked out we could have nine lynx. And he got very, very excited until he realised that actually the, the territory of a lynx is so vast that we could only have probably 0.9 of a lynx. <laughs> so that wasn't ever going to work. But I think, you know, it would be lovely. I think at the moment the British public aren't going to be ready for, for introducing predators on that scale. But it would be lovely to feel that um, once we do have a rewilded landscape, at least we have connections and corridors connecting nature together, we have a much healthier habitat for them. Um, maybe our grandchildren, our great-grandchildren, could make that decision, that it was now it's time to reintroduce lynx and wolves. And actually, in Europe, we're seeing this happening already. Uh, in Europe, which is half the size of the states and much more densely populated, we've now got twice the number of wolves than you have here. We've got ten times as many brown bears, which are a cousin of the, of the grizzly. So, and we've got lynx in now 26 different countries in, in Europe. We're seeing golden jackals coming into Europe from, from Asia. So people are beginning to live with predators again, which is amazing. G Germany has 45 um, wolf packs. So it, it, we, it can be done. We can live with predators again. Hmm. Yes. Um, what's your, your counter-narrative about to uh, concern the rules between climate change and population growth? 
Yeah. Well, um, this is obviously about um, biodiversity and about nature. I mean, we are still producing food. We, we produce um, 75 tons of organic, free-roaming, pasture-fed meat. You know, I think we're all going to have to eat much, much less meat. We've got to get rid of industrialized systems of meat. We cannot grain feed animals anymore. It's, it's unconscionable on every level. It's totally unsustainable. Um, but this isn't a, an agricultural system. Um, we certainly have to move to regenerative agriculture. And in the States, you've got wonderful farmers like Gabe Brown, um, who's written a wonderful book called Dirt to Soil. Um, Joel Salatin, you've got Holistic Management, which is started up by Alan Savory, who's a Zimbabwean. All demonstrating, and um, uh, David Montgomery, who's written a fantastic book that came out, I think, this year, called um, uh, Growing a Revolution. All of which show that we can grow as much food on um, the same amount of land with no inputs whatsoever. We're already producing enough food on this planet for 11 billion people. We waste 40% of it. We have to address that now. We've just driven through um, orchards and orchards of, of oranges and um, grapefruits that aren't being picked because the price isn't ripe, right. We've got, you know, there's, there's field after field of peppers just rotting on the plants because the commodity, commodity price had changed. So we're wasting and overproducing, and, and you know it's not getting to the right places. We've got to sort out that system of, of waste and cut that 40% waste. But for the rest of our land management, we, for intensive agriculture, we have to move to regenerative farming. And we can do it. That will, that will feed the planet. Have, have you done any investigations on Yeah, you see, when, when you look at all these alternatives, and I think we have to be hugely open-minded about this because we're going to need a lot of solutions for this big, for all the problems we face, um, feeding the planet being one of them. But when we talk about these high-tech industrialized systems, alternative systems, including you know the Impossible Burger, I think the question we have to ask ourselves is, are they net carbon sequesterers? Do they sequester carbon, these systems? If they do, fantastic. Growing algae, I think, might really be a positive, and so might um, fungi and, and lichens and that approach, algae. But when we're looking into these high-tech systems, I just wonder, are we actually going down, take another route of unsustainability? I'll talk about this in the context of, of the amount of land that's being uh, taken out of production in Western Europe. Oh, yeah, absolutely. So. Um, in Europe now, we're seeing an area uh, 20 million hectares. So that's an area that's the size of Italy being abandoned. Um, this is on marginal land like, like ours, but it's mostly actually hills uh, where it's absolutely unproductive now for people to farm. Some of it is um, uh, old grazing lands. Um, and you know, you're seeing the young not wanting to lead this very harsh life. There's not enough money in it, and they want to have a life in cities. And so there's this massive land abandonment. So this is, in a way, a great opportunity for rewilding, but we have to know how to do it. Because if you just let that land alone, it would turn into closed canopy woodland, which is very species poor. But if you introduce these drivers, these big herb herbivores, if you, if you um, rewild um, river systems again, if you get that, that hyd hydrological dynamic back, then you start to see really exciting increases in biodiversity. 
Um, Rewilding Europe has a fantastic website. Um, and they have at least nine big projects, huge, I mean, vast by this comparison of NEP. Um, in the Danube Delta, um, in Portugal, uh, in Italy, um, in, there's a huge one as well that Charlie is involved in, in uh, Romania that's going to be, they're calling it the Yellowstone of Europe. Huge areas that are now being rewilded with, with all the predator, the whole, the whole predator um, trophic cascades going on. So there is this abandonment of land um, that is happening. No one is shouting about um, land, scarce land resources. No one's saying we've got to start ploughing up our golf courses or get rid of our vineyards. Um, that, that we, we can feed ourselves. Um, it's a question of how do we do it sustainably. Over the 17 years that you were making this vast change, did you ever have to deal with sabotage from uh, disgruntled neighbors? <laughs> I, would, I mean, no, knowing human beings for what they are, I would be stunned if you said no. <laughs> um, I wouldn't say sabotage. Um, uh, we had poems written about us in the press, you know, about how you know we were, um, you know, distributing re weeds to to the southeast of England. Uh, we had kind of, in a, in a funny kind of way, a bit of sabotage. I mean, it's funny what a rewilding project does. It, it tends to sort of attract wild behaviour. So um, we had, you know, the opposite of rustling. We had um, twelve malnourished sheep dumped on us. Uh, so. So, um, you know, that wasn't very welcome. Um, yes, exactly. That was a wild place, so just chuck them over there. Um, we, we've had, you know, a few incidents which have been unfortunate. We have, we, we have had some poaching, um, animals left wounded because um, people have been shooting at them. Uh, we think they were kids from the local village. Um, we ha we've had um, uh, a, a guy and his son chasing our living the kind of cowboy dream on horses and going yeehaw you know and chasing our cattle um and you know we're having still having a battle with a woman in the village who lets her dogs chase the piglets and then is surprised when the sow turns around and, and chases her and the last time this happened we had to kill the sow and it was incredibly sad because she was a fantastic mum and uh you know she never attacked anybody until she finally lost the plot with this woman and her dogs and she's she's at it again. This woman and her dogs. And so, Why because we didn't want to have the battle of there were plenty of witnesses who'd seen this pig being tormented, and but we didn't want to have the fight with this particular woman in the village. We didn't want to we didn't want to risk the whole project. It was very early days, and um, we wanted to pick our battles. I think I don't know what we'll do now with this one because um, you know it's. Most 99% of people who walk across, we have 27 miles of public footpaths, are incredibly responsible, and uh, it's just some, you know, who are difficult. Yeah. The Cairngorms Connect, particularly, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Which government? <laughs> what government? <laughs> but yeah, no, absolutely. Um, well, interestingly, um, I think when, when Michael Gove was Environment Minister, um, he really did take things on an extraordinary trajectory. I mean, I, you know, I 
wasn't ever a particular fan of Michael Gove, but he came to us very early in the beginning when he was minister. And I think what he has been hoping that in Britain we will show Europe if and when we leave Brexit, we leave Europe if Brexit happens, um, that the cap reform must happen, the common agricultural policy reform must happen. At the moment Europe um, spends, I think it's 43% of its entire budget on farming subsidies, which just go to farmers to produce food. And so um, what he is trying to put in motion, and one hopes that, like, yes, Minister, it rubs off on the civil servants and it actually will carry on the same trajectory, is that um, farmers and land managers will be paid for the other positives that they do. So for all these other services like um, flood mitigation, carbon sequestration, soil restoration, um, water purification, air purification, um, all these things will be taken into account and you will be able to apply for um, uh, uh, your, your subsidy, if you like, or for payment for the services you're providing the public. But I think that's your carrot um, and I think there should be a stick as well. Um, and I think for too long, farmers have been protected from um, the polluter pays principle. And, you know, if you are a farmer and you are polluting your soils and you're polluting your water courses, um, that is, a, a, you're taking away from the public good and you should pay at source for that. And I think as soon as that happens, and it really is felt effectively in the farming community, that will kickstart a different mindset. It has to. I think it has to be carrot and stick then, yeah. Until those payments, are, until that actually happens, where, where farmers who are doing these sorts of practices or allowing the ecosystem to regenerate itself and be self-sustaining, how, 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 um, I'm just wondering how economically one tends, like, if you're, if yeah. you're dependent on your farming health. Well, that, that is, that is what's so interesting. Um, I mean, you know, I can't talk as a, as a farmer really anymore, though we, you know, we are farming beef. Um, we now get an income from eco, ecotourism and from um, buildings, our post-agricultural buildings that previously just cost us an arm and a leg to, to keep the roof on. Now, slowly, with a bit of capital outlay, we have converted them into um, storage space, um, office space, um, light industrial use. There's a huge demand, particularly in our part of the countryside, for um, people wanting to have an office where they don't have to sit in a traffic jam for two hours. You know, you can have sit out and watch pigs rootling. Um, and so that is now a very important income stream for us as well. Um, but I think from the farming position, I mean, if you, if you read, read Gabe Brown's book, Dirt to Soil, it's astonishing. And so this North Dakota farmer, for anyone who's not um, aware of him, um, he is now, um, he's one of the top 15% producers of food in North Dakota, but he now doesn't have any, put any inputs on his farm at all. He doesn't even irrigate in the summer, unlike all his neighbours. And in the winter, his soils are six degrees warmer than his neighbours because his soils are now restored, they're full of life. So he's actually doubled his growing season. So his food not only costs less to produce, and so he's making a much higher profit. He can now take five months off a year He's, he's much less stressed than when, when his farm was, was, was losing money and he had to, couldn't make ends meet. But he's actually now passing on that savings to the consumer. So he now sells at the farm gate cheaper produce than his neighbours, but it's no inputs, it's organic, and it's more nutritious because those, though all that, that produce is taking up the nutrients from the soil. I mean, logically, obviously, 
food that's grown without inputs has to be cheaper than food that is grown with a huge amount of inputs and, and uh, water and everything else and transport. And so it, you know, it, 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 but it takes, I think, I, I think farmers are changing. I think there's now millions of acres across the planet under regenerative agriculture. It is a movement that's happening. Um, and in Australia particularly, it's gathering momentum where they're really hurting because of drought and fire. Um, but, you know, not every farmer is going to be enlightened. And quite often, you know, one only changes one's mindset like we did when your back is absolutely against the wall. It's that crisis that makes you, forces you to think differently. So farmers that are cruising along okay may not willingly change, even if you can explain that there are benefits. But two, uh, two questions. So first, when, when you stop putting aggressive inputs in you mentioned about how the, the land regenerated itself in many species. In California, I think one of the things that we face is that we have very little many species left. And that most of our grasslands, most of our aglands are imported here being fosters. And so for us to do that here, we would end up probably inheriting a Unexpected bounty of Well, it, it's I, I, I'm not familiar with your landscape and with your flora. Um, uh, although we've been driving through it for the last yeah. week, astonishing beauty, uh, much of it. Um, uh, but I, uh, there's, there's two things here, I think. Um, one is a question of, um, you know, we, we, we can't ever hope to go back to recreate the past. I think what we can only hope to do is to create novel ecosystems, perhaps we can call them, um, that are beneficial for um, the soil, for wildlife, that actually function. So we have to pick our battles, I think, with um, our invasive species. When we started the project, we were covered in ragwort, um, one particular thing, species that people are um, appalled by in Britain. Um, it goes, you know, um, with when you get a system, a dynamic system back, um, nature doesn't tolerate a monoculture. When you've got a very dynamic system happening, something, some pathogen will come in to take that out. Often we don't know what that will be. Um, I think also once you get your grazing animals, you know, you get your, your suite of herbivores and maybe look deep back into the past. I mean, who's to say, what about a camel? You know, camels came from America. Maybe they have a place, you know, um, I don't know if it would be appropriate in California, but, you know, there's been astonishing stories about camels that actually did regenerate areas in Arizona. So, um, you know, there are mouthpieces missing. There are ghosts of megafauna out there that we could perhaps try and imitate or use proxies or, you know, but I think um, we could only know by trying, you know, um, experimenting. We could write endless, you know, computer modules and, and predictions and never know but it's sort of you know taking the, 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 the key is I think trying to put the drivers in and then sit back and see what happens and sometimes it's surprising that what we predict will happen doesn't and a personal question a little cheeky perhaps but 
So how do you satisfy your nursery purpose? But if you if you've allowed your land to become naturalized, is there a part of you that misses going to the local nursery and picking out the plant just because you like it? No. No. <laughs> Absolutely not. I don't think there is one I owe one atom in either Charlie or I that looks back and thinks, my God, I wish there was a little bit of us that was still doing what we were doing. I mean, every day, you know, we open our doors onto a scene that is just so wonderful and something coming back that's different all the time. Um, uh, you know, we, we, Charlie's fingers now no longer twitch for the chainsaw when he sees a dead tree in the landscape. We just sit there and look at it and think it's a thing of beauty, which we never did before. Um, so, no regrets. <laughs> One more. I've got a question. How do you um, round up the animals in the wild landscape for your necessary culling and the selling of the meat? Ah, Bud Williams. <laughs> so it's wonderful. I don't know where he came from originally, Bud Williams. He died a few years ago. Arizona, was it? Texas? Somewhere. Anyway, he's an amazing. He could, he could round up um, on foot um, anything from a reindeer to pigs to cattle. And he and his wife, Eunice, who did the videos, so they've got hours and hours and hours of videos. And Eunice wasn't a great video taker and very shaky videos. And her, 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 her commentaries are hilarious. But he has, it's his system that we use. So it's just literally walking them up. And it's, it's getting them going um, not too fast, not too slow, pressuring them. And so you're not walking straight behind them, which spooks them. It's, it's an extraordinary technique. And, it's, and it, when it works, you get them moving at a, a kind of speed which is so compelling that it sucks in all the other animals that you can't find because they're hidden in the scrub, like drops of mercury. And I suppose it's that, um, that sort of migration instinct kicks in. They, there's a big enough mass of them on the move, and the others think, hold on a minute, we don't want to be left, and they join in. That and our Temple Grandin, um, you know, our um, a sort of handling system, who's again another genius cattle whisperer, it's, it's cut hours off the cattle handling system for us. And um, so. Specifically, you do have to still work and grow by the castle. Yeah. 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 <laughs> How did you get it by the Oh, um, I think we had it was an Australian, wasn't it? Um, Rancher, wasn't it, Charlie? A regenerative farmer who came over and talked about yeah, uh, Bud Williams. He made the sort of million acres in Australia, and he has been um, he, 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 Bud was the last person to get it. So I was going to make this out as well. If there aren't any more questions, uh, thank you. Thanks for listening to Live from City Lights, a podcast from City Lights Bookstore and Publishers. Our theme music was provided by Axolotl. All City Lights events are free. To see upcoming events at City Lights Bookstore in San Francisco, check out www.citylights.com events.